been beginning the talk this evening <clears throat> with a, a William Butler Yeats poem called The Celtic Twilight. We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather about us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. The title of this evening's talk is The Pure and Beautiful Mind. And we'll be exploring the benefits of concentration, metta, and insight practice regarding this beautiful and pure mind. We'll explore some of the wholesome beautiful states or factors of mind, chitta-sekas in Pali, that are associated with the development and the fruits of concentration, with the development of metta practice, and with the deepening and the fruits of vipassana or insight practice, all of which include a growing depth and clarity of mindfulness the chief, as the Buddha called mindfulness, this quality or this factor of mind that needs to accompany us through all of our practice. The Buddha's very precise teachings and analysis of these mind states or factors of mind are disclosed in the Abhidhamma Pitaka or the Abhidhamma basket. So we'll do just a a brief exploration of what this Abhidhamma basket is all about. The Abhidhamma is one of three baskets, or one of three divisions, we could say, of the Pali Canon, which is the authoritative record of the Buddha's teachings. The first basket, or the first collection, is the Book of Discipline, containing all of the rules of conduct for the monks and for the nuns, and all of the guidelines regarding governing and living in community, and meaning in this case a monastic sangha, a monastic community. Though many of these guidelines can also be applied to living living in a lay Buddhist community, living as Buddhist, lay Buddhist practitioners, maybe in a family, with a partner, or by oneself, or temporarily living in a community of practitioners such as we are right here in retreat. The second collection, or basket, brings together all of the discourses, all of the teachings all of the suttas that the Buddha gave over his 45 years of teaching. And the third collection, or the third basket, is the Abhidhamma Pitaka. And this basket actually has quite a distinctly uh, different character or different quality than the other two. 
whereas it's not a, a record of discourses and discussions occurring in real-life settings, which both of the other baskets are very much rooted in. But rather the Abhidhamma is a very clear and detailed and refined uh, disclosure of mind and mental processes that combine psychology, ethics, virtue, and philosophy from the Buddhist perspective into quite a unique and actually quite a remarkable synthesis. And it's experiential, meaning it's what we actually experience as our practice develops and blossoms. I think it's important in that it can be helpful and also inspiring at some point along the way of our practice to actually hear in at least some detail about some of the more refined experiential processes that take place in our practice. To understand a bit more of how the mind works in practice. Through the years of my own practice, I found this information actually to be quite interesting in and of itself, as well as the fact that this information, this understanding, can help to counter the various fears and other aversive reactions that might come up, along with the made-up and sometimes fanciful stories and analyses that happen as well as the misperceptions and the misunderstandings and the attachments and the clingings that come up in practice in relationship to what might be unusual or maybe unfamiliar experiences, or maybe also even in relationship to our more familiar experiences. One of my Burmese teachers, Saida Upandita, called these unusual or non-ordinary wholesome experiences the Dharma delights of our practice. The Abhidhamma speaks about 38 wholesome mental factors, wholesome mental states, some of which are both wholesome and beautiful. They're associated with the development phase of concentration and also with the manifestation of absorption with jhana, with many of these states also occurring to varying degrees during the development and manifestation of metta, and then ongoing into vipassana practice as mindfulness and insight unfold and blossom. Twenty-nine of these wholesome and beautiful mental states or mental factors are universally developed throughout our practice. Six of them are considered to be occasional and are wholesome only if they're accompanied by a wholesome consciousness. What this all means will become, uh, actually become clearer as we explore these various mental factors. 
the first five of these factors are active, wholesome mental factors that are part of both the initial and the ongoing development of concentration, and particularly a pure concentration practice, and also with the focus of attention involved in metta practice. With the first two factors also being necessary and active components throughout our practice of insight, our practice of vipassana. The last three of these first five factors manifest as active, wholesome, experiential states during specific stages of the development and manifestation of concentration and jhana, jhana absorption, and also in relationship to metta, to varying degrees. They're also active during aspects of vipassana practice. So they're aspects of all of our practices. So these first five wholesome factors of mind are aspects of practice that every one of you, each one of you, are experiencing to varying degrees right here and now in this retreat. So first I'd like to just list these first five wholesome factors uh, that are associated with the development of concentration and metta and also inside practice. So the first of these is uh, the initial application of the mind, initial application of the attention, vitaka. The second is the sustained application of the attention, sustained application of the mind, vichara in Pali. Only when these are accompanied by a healthy, wholesome mind consciousness are these first two mental factors, wholesome factors of mind. So they're called occasionals. Unwholesome application and sustaining the attention, sustaining the mind on something unwholesome is possible, of course, as I'm sure every one of us knows from our own experience. Most likely, We've, at times, applied and sustained our attention on various unwholesome and maybe, at times, even harmful or hurtful or totally unnecessary or maybe frivolous or unskillful or insensitive activities. So the third of these first five is, the Pali word is piti, And the translation that I like is zest, joy. The fourth is sukha in Pali, a kind of sweet happiness. And the fifth is ikagata, which translates as one-pointedness. So I'd like to explore uh, each of these now with just a little bit more depth. This first wholesome factor of mind, vitaka, the initial application, meaning it's the application of the mind to the object. 
And this has, Vitaka has the characteristic of directing the mind into the object. So in our case here, for example, sensations of the breath at the anapana spot, or maybe the movement of the breath in some other area of the body, or to a particular metta phrase, and maybe the internal visual image of the metta object, be it a benefactor, a dear friend, family member, etc., Vitaka's function is uh, to strike at the object as this very graphic uh, description of the Abhidhamma speaks about. Striking at the object comes directly from the Abhidhamma. The process experientially manifests as leading or training the mind, leading or training the attention to the object. And it, it's uh, often kind of like training a puppy. You know, you have to do it over and over and over again, like we do when we train a puppy. Vitaka has the special task or fruit of inhibiting the hindrance of sloth and torpor, inhibiting sleepiness and inhibiting lethargy. And Vitaka is very closely uh, connected or very closely associated uh, with intention, with right intention or skillful, wise, wholesome intention as it's uh, delineated in the Noble Eightfold Path. The second wholesome factor of mind in Pali Vichara this sustained application. Vichara has the characteristic of continued pressure, or as it's described in the Abhidhamma, the stroking of the object, in the sense of staying with it. Staying with it and seeing and knowing how it's manifesting. It's the continuing and sustaining exercise of the mind on the object. So, in our case here, maybe the breath sensation at the anapana spot, or the sensations of the in and out breath somewhere else in the body, or a metaphrase and the image of the metta object. Vichara temporarily inhibits the hindrance of uh, of doubt, and in deep concentration, in jhana concentration, uh, it really weakens doubt overall throughout one's ongoing concentration and metta, and and then eventually into the vipassana practice. There's some wonderful um, metaphors or similes uh, in the commentaries of the Abhidhamma uh, highlighting the difference between vitaka and vichara. <clears throat> One of them is uh, regarding vitaka. It says, like a bird spreading out its wings to fly, the initial application. And vichara, like a bird going through the air or gliding through the air 
with outstretched wings. So the sustained application. The third factor of mind, (coughs) piti in Pali, zest or joy. And piti is an occasional. Why? Because if it if it is only uh, only if it manifests with no identification or attachment, is it wholesome and beautiful? And this is an important aspect of this. The mental characteristic of PT can actually be quite endearing, particularly when it's mostly or all just mental. And it can be explained as uh, delight or a very positive and pleasurable interest in the object. Its function is to refresh the mind and refresh the body. And it pervades the mind and body in its initial stages with more physical phenomena, such as kind of thrills, as it's sometimes called. Sometimes described as rapturous feelings, though this word uh, I don't feel like it really covers all of the nuances of the of that uh, more physical uh, PT phenomena. It often uh, manifests as a mind and body quality of elation, of gladness, joy, even mirth kind of delight and merriment, sometimes even exaltation and exhilaration and a sense of satisfaction in the mind. In the commentaries, there are five grades of piti distinguished that can arise when vitaka and vichara are in place and perking along in our practice. And as I uh, share these with you, I'm sure that some of these will be recognized for many of you as some of your own experiences that have occurred in your practice at times to varying degrees. So the first of these is called minor joy or minor zest. And it's said to be able to raise the hairs on the body. (laughs) The second is momentary joy or momentary zest. And this shows up as small flashes of like lightning in the mind. The second is called showering joy or showering zest. And this experience as though it breaks over the whole body again and again and again like waves on the seashore. It's almost orgasmic-like. The next is called uplifting joy or uplifting zest. This can cause the body to feel like it's levitating, which I've heard, I've never experienced myself, nor have I uh, viewed this, but I've heard, uh, for some yogis, this actually has occurred. There's a story that um, my friend and co-teacher, Sayadaw Vivekananda, tells about a monk uh, uh, practicing at a monastery in Burma. 
doing sitting practice on his bed in his kuti, in his room, his practice space. And he would rise up and fall over, rise up and fall over again and again and again. Well, he did something that is discouraged uh, for monks to do. He bragged about it to the other monks. (laughs) And uh, they wanted to see it. So he said, okay, you come to my kuti and stand at the window at a certain day, on a certain day at a certain time, and you can watch. So the story goes that in fact they did, and in fact he did rise up and fall over, rise up and fall over, put on a good show. (laughs) So the next one is called pervading joy or pervading zest. And this floods the whole mind and body with a very refreshing, bright elation. The Abhidhamma description is, it's like a flood that fills a cavern. As a factor of mind, a sustained piti, particularly piti that's experienced much more as a mind state than in the body, has the potential to weaken the hindrance of ill will. And with a very focused and mindful and absorbed attention on the object, as happens with the manifestation of jhana, and sometimes also happens with metta practice, PT can temporarily completely inhibit ill will. PT at this point is a mind state. It's not a bodily experience at this point. There's a a term that some of you have probably heard uh, in relationship to vipassana practice. The term is corruptions of insight. And it relates to these kinds of experiences that I've just uh, uh, shared with you. The reason that they're corruptions of insight or can be called corruptions of insight is because there is identity and attachment to these experiences. If there's no identity and if there's no attachment, they are not corrupting anything. They're what Sayada Upandita calls our Dharma delights. But attachment and... uh, Identification can be quite subtle. So we need to stay very mindful as these uh, experiences unfold and blossom. The fourth aspect of mind that I want to mention is sukha in Pali, or a kind of sweet happiness. This state of mind is wholesome and beautiful only if there's no identification and no attachment to it when it's occurring. So consequently, it's an occasional. This mental factor is a very pleasant, happy 
mental feeling that's born out of contact with the object of attention, such as the breath at the Anapana spot, or possibly breath sensation in another area of the body, and possibly also metaphrases and the object of metta. Sukha is a very sweet, blissful mental feeling born out of detachment from all sensual pleasures. So it's explained as an unworldly or spiritual happiness. And it can be very, very gratifying, engendering a very deep sense of gratification and appreciation. And because of that, (laughs) it's easy to get attached to. So mindfulness really needs to remain strong and clear. Sukha counters and weakens the hindrance of restlessness and worry. And although piti and sukha are very closely connected, they're not the same. So I'd like to share uh, a a little piece of the commentary description of piti and sukha that comes from the uh, Abhidhamma commentaries. Piti, or joy, sometimes called rapture, is like a weary traveler going along a path in a great desert in summer and is overcome by heat and thirst. This person sees another person on the path and asks, uh, where is water? And the other person says, soon there will be a dense forest with a lake. Go there and you will get some water. And upon hearing this, the traveler is glad and is joyful and delighted and then more and more glad and delighted when this traveler sees leaves on the ground and then sees people with wet clothes and wet hair and then they hear the sounds of wildfowl. And then see, then they see the dense green forest like a net of jewels growing at the edge of the lake and then see the clear, transparent water and water lilies growing in the lake. And then this weary traveler is more and more and more joyful, glad, and delighted. So that's the piti experience, or the metaphor for piti description. Sukha, ease, sweet happiness, is like the traveler entering the forest shade and enjoying the water. The commentary describes it like this. This being descends into the lake, bathes and drinks with pleasure, eats the fibers and the stalks of the lilies, adorns herself or himself with lotus flowers, then ascends the lake, dries off with a bathing cloth, and lies down in the cool shade with the breeze blowing ever so gently and says, Oh, bliss, oh, bliss. With a sense of ease and sweet happiness growing very strong, enjoying the taste of the object, as it says in this Abhidhamma commentary. 
Satopiti, joy, rapture, sukha, the sweet bliss of happiness. They're closely connected, but not the same. Piti gains prominence before sukha, and piti provides the causal foundation for sukha to arise. The fifth of these five wholesome mental factors is one-pointedness, ikagata in Pali. And this is a universal mental factor. And it literally means one-pointed state. This mental factor is the primary component. It's the essence of concentration. It's the essence of samadhi. Be it a sustained and potential absorbed concentration, uh, jhana concentration, whether it's a, 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 a an absorbed and potentially absorbed concentration in jhana, or be it a momentary focus of attention in vipassana, insight practice, or in metta practice. One-pointedness, ikagata, temporarily weakens sensual desire to some degree overall while it's manifesting at the time that it's manifesting meditatively. In a very deep, absorbed concentration of the fourth jhana, the development and the maturation of ikagata completely, temporarily inhibits sensual desire. And it also weakens our tendency, one's tendency towards blindly, towards habitually being caught in various aspects of sensual desire when there's a maturing capacity for a momentary focus of attention that has to be accompanied, must be accompanied by strong mindfulness. So This is all necessary, these are all the necessary conditions for any deeply transformative meditative attainment. This this capacity to focus one-pointedly in a sustained way, in an absorbed way, or a momentary way. And mindfulness must accompany the process. The function of ikakata, the function of one-pointedness, is that one is able to very closely contemplate the object. Though it actually can't perform this function all by itself. It requires the joint or the cooperative action of the other four factors that we've just explored a bit each performing its own particular, own special function. Such as vitaka, applying the attention, along with all the other associated states of the, on the object. Vichara, sustaining the attention. And, with, and then piti, bringing a delight and interest in relationship to the object of attention. And sukha, experiencing a sweet happiness in relationship to the object. So these are the first five wholesome factors of mind that are associated with the development of 
concentration and possibly at some point jhana and metta practice and also insight or vipassana practice. So now we'll go on and look at the other beneficial factors of of mind uh, somewhat more briefly than we've looked at these first five that are associated with concentration, metta, and also with vipassana practice. Uh, And some of these we've already explored in this retreat to some degree. So you'll recognize that as we go along. The next is that I'd like to mention is uh, decision or resolve or intention. The Pali word is adimoka. And this is an occasional as it's wholesome only if it's associated with a wholesome object of consciousness. So the literal translation of adimoka is releasing the mind into the object. Or it's often rendered as decision or resolution. And it has the characteristic of conviction and the function of not groping around. So it's clear, clearly connected, ready to connect, not groping around. It helps to create and support a clarity of purpose in relationship to engaging in practice. It manifests as decisiveness regarding the particular object of attention. And its nearest and most immediate cause is that it just simply needs something to be convinced about and to connect to. That sounds obvious, but as some of you know, it's kind of sometimes hard to get to that one. (laughs) So for example, in our case here, making a resolve or an intention to give one's complete attention to the breath at the Anapana spot or to a metta phrase or to a particular object of metta or in Vipassana practice, for instance, resolving to give full attention maybe to body sensations or to mental states. In the Abhidhamma, Adimoka has been compared to a stone pillar owing to its unshakable resolve regarding the object. So the next wholesome mental state is that we'll explore is energy. And the Pali word is virya. And this is another occasional, an occasional wholesome mind state. <clears throat> it's wholesome only when it's associated with wholesome activity in practice. Virya is a state of... Uh, virya is an, uh, the state of action, the action of one who is vigorous in practice. And its characteristic is exertion and supporting, or as in the Abhidhamma, it's called mobilizing or marshalling. Its function is to support the states that it's associated with. 
So it manifests as non-collapsing. The closest cause for this energy to manifest is actually a state of samvega, a state of the urgency, a spiritual urgency to practice. And it can also be encouraged and be stimulated by engaging in an experience that arouses energy. could be as simple as taking a refreshing walk, knowing when that's needed and doing that. Maybe doing 15 minutes of mindful yoga, or maybe tai chi or qigong, or some mindful exercise. Or any, actually, any wholesome activity that stirs and inspires one's internal energy towards uh, vigorous action, meaning here towards energetic practice. So the next wholesome uh, factor of mind that we'll explore a bit is wholesome desire. And the Pali word is chanda. meaning the desire to act, the desire to perform and to achieve an action or to achieve a result in relationship to practice. And this kind of desire needs to be distinguished uh, from the unwholesome desires that stem from greed and from lust. Chanda is a wholesome desire when it's associated with various wholesome intentions. Chanda is what got you here to retreat. It can function in the various, uh, it can function as a very virtuous desire to achieve a worthy goal, as in relationship to our practice. And it's spoken of metaphorically in the Abhidhamma commentaries as, and I, I really love this metaphor, the stretching forth of the mind's hand toward the object. A really beautiful expression, an image that says a lot. Not grabbing for experience, but stretching forth of the mind's hand toward the object. So there's a long list of 27 universal beautiful factors or states of mind, some of which we've already explored in this retreat to some degree, and others which we may yet explore more uh, in more detail. But I'm just going to go through them quickly. The first is faith. These are universal, beautiful, and wholesome factors or states of mind that are happening, developing in within your practice. Faith, mindfulness. Mindfulness, the overall ground uh, of every single bit of our practice, all our practices. The next is hiri, and the, sec- the next one after that is otapa, Hiri, moral shame, otapad, uh, translated as moral dread or fear of wrongdoing. And these are two beautiful mental factors, hiri and otapa, and they're considered to be 
absolutely necessary for the protection and for the functioning of the family, of the community, of the world, and in relationship to all relationships. And going on, non-greed, non-hatred, neutrality of mind, which is associated directly with equanimity, tranquility of mind and heart, which is extensive calmness, tranquility of consciousness, lightness of heart and mind, meaning a brightness, the opposite of the sinking mind or the sinking heart, the opposite of heaviness of mind and heart and consciousness, malleability of mind, malleability of heart, meaning non-rigidity, very important quality for our practice, malleability of consciousness, wieldiness of mind and heart. What does this mean? It means the ability of the mind to go where it needs to go. Proficiency of mind and heart, meaning it's quick, the clarity and the quickness of the mind and the heart. Proficiency of consciousness. Honesty, uprightness of mind and heart. Honesty and uprightness of consciousness. And the next four of these are the divine abidings or the Brahma Viharas, which are beautiful and wholesome qualities of the mind and heart. Metta, unconditional loving kindness. Karuna, boundless unconditional compassion. Mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy in relationship to others' success, others' happiness, others' joy. And equanimity or upeka. And again, just to say, all of this is developing to varying degrees in each of your hearts and minds as you practice. It's inevitable. It's happening. So there's three more beautiful mental factors and they're called the abstinences. And there are three distinct mental factors that the Buddha often spoke about that come about through three different types or three different levels of abstinence. And I'll just mention these and, and say just a little bit about each one. All three of these are really uh, very important for the development of concentration and metta and insight practice. So the first is called natural abstinence, meaning the abstinence from mental and physical deeds that cause harm to oneself and cause harm to others. So when an opportunity arises to engage in them, uh, uh, harmful activity, due to various conditions and uh, particular circumstances, maybe due to one's uh, uh, particular social position or age or uh, various levels of education, uh, some particular specific circumstances in one's life at a particular time, etc. This natural abstinence means we naturally abstain 
from these mental and physical harmful deeds out of our innate wisdom and compassion. The second abstinence is the abstinence of undertaking the precepts. So the commitment in our life to observing the precepts, the guidelines, abstaining from killing sentient beings, abstaining from harmful speech, abstaining from stealing sexual or harmful sexual activity, uh, uh, abstaining from taking, uh, uh, imbibing intoxicants that cloud the mind. So this is the abstinence that we take up by undertaking the precepts. The third abstinence is abstinence by eradication. And this comes about through the fruits of engaging in the supra-mundane path of the purification of the heart and mind. The Buddha-Dhamma path of awakening, of liberation. What is eradicated is any disposition towards engaging in deeds that cause harm. That's profound. This abstinence by eradication, what is eradicated is any disposition towards engaging in deeds that cause harm. It's an amazing possibility. Absolutely no inclination to engage in any deeds that cause harm. And we're all moving towards that possibility. The first two abstinences are mundane, they're common, they're ordinary in the worldly sense. While this third abstinence is a supramundane, meaning it's not common in the worldly sense, it's, but it's of, a, of a, a spiritually purified nature. So I'd like to say just a few more words uh, uh, about the second level of of abstinence. Uh, This potentially beautiful and wholesome uh, aspect of the three abstinences in relationship to observing the precepts. So right speech... This deliberate, deliberate abstinence that we have signed on for when we take the precepts uh, of abstaining from wrong speech, meaning abstaining from false speech or slanderous speech or harsh, harsh speech or frivolous kinds of talking. And it's a practice for sure. It doesn't just come automatically because we've taken the precepts. We are learning. The second one, right action. The deliberate abstinence from wrong or harmful bodily action, such as killing and stealing and sexual misconduct. Again, it isn't automatic when we take a precept. We're learning. We're learning how 
it works and what it means in relationship to ourself and to other beings. And the last one, right livelihood. Deliberate abstinence from wrong livelihood, such as and classically dealing in poisons and weapons, intoxicants, dealing in animals for slaughter. And this one is uh, a broad and subtle one. Uh, work that is selfishly oriented in usury ways regarding other human beings and other living beings. And that's a pretty profound potential to really understand that and not and not engage in work that has that kind of orientation. So again, we're learning. We're learning what, what this all means directly, experientially, when we take these precepts. These three abstinences function as a kind of shrinking back from harmful deeds. And they manifest as the, eventually and little by little, as the abstinence from such deeds. The closest and most pertinent causes for this are the special and beautiful qualities of faith and of hiri otapa, the shame of engaging in harmful deeds, hiri, and the fear of wrongdoing, otapa. And having uh, few wants and wishes, and that manifests differently for each of us, of course, but living in a relatively simple way in our life, with not a lot of unnecessary extras. And that, again, is a process. It comes about little by little in many different small ways for each of us. We could say that all three of these beautiful mental factors can be regarded as the mind, the heart's wholesome (coughs) aversion to wrongdoing. So the last of this long list of wholesome and beautiful mental factors, wholesome and beautiful mental states that develop and are developing in in this very moment through our practice is non-delusion. The wisdom faculty, non-delusion. The wholesome and beautiful factor of understanding and eventually liberation, insight which is really the essence of the path. This is a path of the heart and mind, the purification of the heart and the mind. And as Carlos Castaneda said, a person of knowledge chooses a path with heart and follows it, then looks and rejoices and laughs, then sees and knows. I think the importance of beginning to clearly recognize at least some of these experiential states in relationship to our own practice 
our own practice experience, such as concentration and mindfulness and metta and vipassana practice, as they all continue and as they blossom, is that with knowledge of what's occurring and why it's occurring, we have the opportunity, we have the possibility to see, to recognize, and to know these beautiful and wholesome states without attachment and without identification and without fear or other aversive reactions and without misunderstandings and misperceptions but rather with what is classically called dispassion which is actually what allows the continuing development of our practice to just continue unfolding and blossoming. And this is from the Samyutta Nikaya, a little piece from that called How Did the Buddha Dwell? And it's the Buddha offering the words. Yogis, bhikkhus, mindfulness with breathing, anapanasati, that one has developed and makes much of, has great fruit and great benefit. Even I myself, before awakening, when not yet enlightened, while still a bodhisattva, a Buddha-to-be, lived in this dwelling, lived in this way of life, for the most part. When I lived mainly in this dwelling, the body was not stressed, the eyes were not strained, and my mind was released from the asavas, released from the corruptions, the cankers, released from unwholesome states, through non-attachment. For this reason, should anyone wish, may my body be not stressed, may my eyes be not strained, may my mind be released from the asava through non-attachment, then that person ought to attend carefully in his or her heart and mind to this mindfulness with breathing meditation. in their fullness, in their utmost maturity, these wholesome and beautiful qualities or these wholesome and beautiful capacities are the qualities and capacities of a liberated mind, of a liberated heart. As we come to the end of our talk this evening, I'd like to offer you some advice from Robert Piercig. Robert Piercig wrote Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Some of you may have read that book if you're old enough. It was one of the first Dharma books I ever read a long time ago. <laughs> and this is from Robert Piercig from the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And it's called Peace of Mind. So the thing to do when working on a motorcycle, as in any other task, is to cultivate the peace of mind which does not separate oneself from one's surroundings. When that is done successfully, then everything else follows naturally. 
Peace of mind produces right values. Right values produce right thoughts. Right thoughts produce right actions. And right actions produce work, which will be a material reflection for others to see of the serenity at the center of it all. In closing the talk with some words from the Tibetan Buddhist master Atisha from the 11th century. The greatest achievement is selflessness. The greatest worth is self-mastery. The greatest quality is seeking to serve others. The greatest precept is continual awareness. The greatest medicine is the emptiness of everything. The greatest action is not conforming with the world's ways. The greatest magic is transmuting the passions. The greatest generosity is non-attachment. The greatest goodness is a peaceful mind. The greatest patience is humility. The greatest effort is not concerned with results. The greatest meditation is a mind that lets go. The greatest wisdom is seeing through appearances. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. May all of the energies and fruits that manifest through our practice serve with immeasurable impartiality, without bias, without prejudice, towards the welfare, the happiness, and the liberation of all beings everywhere.